Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Today, God speaks to us from Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 through 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, let me start with a bit of a, a proposition for us today. You know, by and large, uh, people, uh, they tend to like Jesus as a person. Uh, but usually, um, you will find people who may like Jesus, but also have real tensions with the Bible. It's actually a pretty common theme. Um, you will be hard-pressed to find people who don't like Jesus. Every major world religion holds him to some high esteem. But you'll have a much easier time finding people who don't like the Bible, and more specifically, people that don't like aspects of the Old Testament of the Bible. For many of them, uh, the Bible, especially the Old Testament, is just full of ideas that we need to just leave behind. We need to let them pass away. We live in a more refined and a more knowledgeable time, and so we can allow those ancient ideas go, let them go. But then you come to a passage like ours today, and we are confronted with a very difficult proposition. Specifically, Jesus, the one who is often held in great esteem and respect, is the one here who holds the Bible, especially the Old Testament, with great esteem, respect, and authority. Now, if you've been with us, we've been in the middle of a series called Thy Kingdom Come, which has been a really slow look at uh, Jesus's manifesto, the Sermon on the Mount. And so far, we've spent many weeks looking at the values of Christ's kingdom through the Beatitudes. Uh, and then last week, Pastor Abe helped us see uh, that those who are parts of the kingdom of God are a people who enter into the world as salt and light, as a testament of this kingdom. But now, in Jesus' sermon, he begins to shift the tone of his sermon a bit. Jesus takes all that he's said about the character of the kingdom, the kind of people who would inhabit that kingdom, and now begins to teach about how we should now live as part of the kingdom. We are shifting now from seeing the values of the kingdom to now looking at the ethics of the kingdom. How should we live? And over the course of the coming weeks, Jesus is going to get extremely practical about things like anger and sexuality and lust and promise keeping and revenge and generosity and a host of other topics. But today, before we get to those in coming weeks, we need to see first what he 
imagines is necessary, what he believes to be necessary to construct this ethical life. One must first consider the foundation of life. And for Jesus, that foundation is what he calls the law and the prophets. So to understand the significance and the implications of what Jesus is telling us here, I want to take a look at uh, relationships to the law and the prophets. And what I mean by that is I want to take a look at Jesus's relationship to the law and the prophets. Then I want to consider our relationship to the law and the prophets. And then finally, we'll take a look at the kingdom's relationship to the law and the prophets. Okay, so first, Jesus's relationship. Uh, we need to first consider what Jesus means when he says the law and the prophets. Now, this phrase is a way of describing what we call the Old Testament. So for the Jewish people, the law and the prophets, it was their Bible. And what might be striking for some is that Jesus says here, in essence, don't for a single moment believe that any portion of the law and the prophets will pass away. Uh, other translations, maybe you've heard before, will, say, will say, uh, we'll just, um, translate it as not one iota or dot or not one jot or tittle. Of, uh, of the Old Testament, of the law and the prophets will pass away. And the reason why I'm drawing those translations out is because it really emphasizes what Jesus is talking about. If you know some of these older translations, uh, the jot in Hebrew is referencing the yod, which is the 10th letter of the uh, Hebrew alphabet. And it's the smallest of the letters in Hebrew. And the reason why Jesus notes this is because it would have been very commonly used. It would have been used a lot like a comma. Or the, the dot and the tittle that you might see in other uh, English translation refers to this very tiny little extension hook on different letters that differentiates uh, those letters from each other. It's tiny, kind of like a, a period, really small. And the reason why I'm drawing this out is because Jesus is saying, listen, even down to the most minute aspects of the law and the prophets, none of them shall pass away. All of it remains. Something else that you notice here is the way that Jesus talks about this proposition. Look at uh, verse 18. He says it this way. He says, for truly, I say to you. Now that word truly is uh, literally the word uh, amen translated elsewhere. Jesus is saying, for amen, I say to you. Of course, we know that word and we use that word amen uh, at the end of a prayer. Uh, and in context, when we say amen at the end of a prayer, it's essentially uh, an expression of faith. It's saying to God, God, may it be so. Amen. It's extending an offering of faith to God based on what we just prayed. But when Jesus starts his sentences this way, it's not an expression of faith concerning what he just said. Rather, it's an authoritative declaration about what he's about to say, that what he is about to say is true. And in the Bible, he is the only one who does this because it speaks to an authority that no one else would dare claim to have. And I say all of this about the iota and dot, jot and tittle, about this idea of amen, because it communicates in the strongest possible terms Jesus saying, don't miss for one second that the law and the prophets, the Bible, is of greatest importance to me. Jesus, in essence, is saying, you cannot like me and not the Bible. They go together, and we'll see why. 
So that's how Jesus understands the Bible, the law and the prophets. If that's his relationship, what's our relationship to the law and the prophets? Well, uh, too often, of course, I think even just based on what I just said, I hope we could be honest to say that we don't typically see the scriptures the way that Jesus saw them. Right? We tend to have more tension with not only believing them, but also obeying and living them out. Because the Old Testament creates some very real tensions for people who do not like what the Old, Test- uh, what the Old Testament has to teach. The tension is as old as the Christian church as well. In the second uh, century, there was uh, someone who was deemed a heretic, Marcion. He was a man labeled a heretic by the early church because he rejected the God of the Old Testament, believing him, the God of the Old Testament, to be a different God than the God of the New Testament. And so he actually rewrote the entire New Testament, eliminating all references to the Old Testament, which, by the way, just so that we're clear, if you were to attempt to really eliminate all of the Old Testament from the New, you'd have very little left in the New Testament. Everything Jesus said oozed the Old Testament. Everything the apostles wrote about oozed the Old Testament. And yet he attempted to rewrite scripture to avoid the Old Testament altogether. And today, the vestiges of that belief to varying degrees still exists now. There's still that tendency to want to rewrite the New Testament to get rid of the Old And for some, the difficulties in understanding uh, and embracing the Old Testament uh, can even really lead them to reject Christianity altogether. That's one way this plays out. Another way that this, this tension can play out is that even amongst Christians, there can be implicit and sometimes explicit marginalization of the Old Testament. And sometimes that plays out as just a hyper focus on the New Testament. And that marginalization is really often the result of one of two things, or sometimes both, two problems. A lot of times this rejection of the Old Testament, this marginalization of the Old Testament happens either because there's a misunderstanding of what's being read, or there's alternative commitments that people have. And I want to spend a minute on these two things, uh, because I think they're incredibly significant for us right now. I need you to follow me. I'm going to try to do this pretty quickly, but I think it's a really great consequence. I'm going to go fast. If you've got to go back and re-listen, it will be available this week if you need to. But let me try to unpack for you why I think the tension with the Old Testament exists because of a misunderstanding and because of alternative commitments. Let's look at those two things. First, the misunderstanding. Uh, first, for some, when they read the Old Testament, Uh, They read it through the the wrong lens. And I feel pretty confident that many of us here, and maybe people that you know, fall into this category. It's pretty common. As an example, the Old Testament is full of really difficult stories about judgment and violence and injustice. And some read those stories and think that the God of the Old Testament must be a moral monster who sanctioned such horrific things to actually take place. However, that perspective also often comes as a result of misunderstanding what's being read. It's often the result of reading stories about what happened instead of reading them, as we should, as simply telling us what did happen, not necessarily what should have happened. Many of the tragic stories in the Old Testament are told as historical narratives, a history 
tells us, historical narrative tells us whether, not whether or not something should have happened, it's simply describing what actually took place. And in fact, much of the Old Testament narrative is about what happens when people reject and disobey God, not what happens with people who follow and trust him. Very key distinction to make. Another misunderstanding is that when people read the law and uh, the Old Testament, uh, we often misunderstand the character of the law that we see in the Old Testament. And let me, again, do this quickly. But there's essentially three different kinds of laws that you see in the Old Testament. You see a civil law, you see a a ceremonial law, and you see a moral law. Uh, The civil laws, they were given by God to Israel when they left uh, slavery in Egypt. They had been an enslaved people for centuries, and as a result, God gives them laws about how to govern and structure their new nation. Now, those laws are no longer applicable to us today in the same way that they were because we're not Israel at that time. It was very specific for them at the time. But then you have uh, the ceremonial laws. Those laws were uh, related to the old sacrificial system, related to the purity and religious system that God had instituted at the time. They included ways to keep oneself pure, and they addressed the various ceremonies and sacrifices that would take place. Those laws, however, are fulfilled by Jesus. In our passage, when Jesus says that he's come to fulfill the law, this is at least one of the things that he has in mind, that he now becomes our purity, that he now becomes the perfect sacrifice. And so those laws, these ceremonial laws, these purity laws, are no longer applicable in the same way because Jesus has perfectly fulfilled the ceremonial laws. But then you have the moral law of God which is a law that is very much still in effect today. Laws like the Ten Commandments that speak of sexuality and family life and honoring life and honesty and contentment and worshiping God alone. And the misunderstanding often comes when the civil law or the ceremonial laws are treated as moral laws. It becomes very confusing for people to navigate those things. And so the consequence for some is to marginalize or reject all of it as opposed to understanding and reading correctly. There's a misunderstanding that occurs. Now that's one reason why people might marginalize or reject the law and the prophets. But there's another reason as well, not just a misunderstanding, but I also think another reason is that because sometimes there are alternative commitments Things that we are committed to more than maybe what the scriptures would have to say. Let me explain to you what I mean by that. There is a category. This category, I think, really comes down to this bottom line. That because, at times, we have commitments to non-biblical ideology, as a result, the entire Old Testament ends up getting marginalized in order to justify remaining committed to these alternative commitments. And at the risk of slightly overstating all of this, I think there is essentially a progressive and a conservative way to marginalize the Old Testament because of alternative commitments. Why, are, why is it that we reject the Old Testament commitments? Or the Old Testament commandments? What are these alternative commitments. Well, let me paint you a bit of a picture. Again, we're going to push these a little bit to the extremes, but I think it's actually pretty close 
to where we may find ourselves at times. Again, there's this progressive and there's this conservative way to do this. And I don't mean politically, I mean in the most literal sense of the terms, right? Conservatives want to tend to keep things the way they are. Progressives want to push things forward, right? So not so much in the political ideology world, but more along the lines of what we actually mean literally with progressive and conservative. Progressives tend to reject the law because of its demands for holiness and purity. Pin that for a second. Progressives tend to reject the law because of its demands for purity and holiness. Conservatives, though, they tend to reject the, the prophets because of its demands for justice. Okay? Progressives tend to resist the, uh, the law because of its call to holiness and purity. Conservatives tend to reject the law, or the prophets, rather, because of its demands for justice. Let me explain to you what I mean. I'll unpack that a bit more. But as I do, I want us all to keep the words of Jesus in front of us, where Jesus says that not least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law and the prophets until all has been accomplished. Keep those words in front of us. Progressive rejection. Let me consider that for a second. That there is this tendency for progressives to reject the law. What is the law? Well, the law of God, especially the moral law we're talking about here, are commands about how we ought to live, what it means to be holy and righteous and pure. And the law assumes that you and I are sinful, disobedient, and rebellious against God, our creator. The law is a constant reminder of God's holiness and that he demands obedience about how we ought to live, what we do with our bodies, the thoughts and the attitudes that we possess. And so for some, their commitments to live as they wish, to in essence be their own God, to be the arbiter of what is good, right, and true means a rejection of the law. It's far easier to reject the law than to try and change my life to fit the demands of God's obedience, or of obedience to God, his purity, his holiness. And so in this way, the more progressive types tend to reject the law because it demands holiness and purity. But I also said there's this conservative rejection that can take place. There's a more conservative marginalization of the Old Testament because for them, it's a tendency toward not rejecting the law, but rejecting the prophets. And what I mean is that many on the more conservative end will agree with everything I just said about obedience to the moral law of God. When the law speaks of you know, sexuality and family life and honesty and contentment and there being only one true God that we ought to worship, they are happy to say, yes, I agree that we should live holy and obedient lives. The conservative tends to not reject the law for its call to purity. Instead, they reject often the prophets and their call for justice. The Old Testament prophets are incredibly clear about issues of justice and corporate responsibility for the failure of the injustices that exist within a particular, within Israel in particular, time and time again. The prophets bring words of condemnation to the people of Israel. The words were sometimes reserved for specific people, like specific leaders, but over and over again, it's not individuals receiving these words, 
but rather the entire nation. And what I mean is that the majority of the Old Testament prophets brought words of condemnation not to Israel only because of personal individual sins that were committed, but brought words of judgment against the systems and the structures that the people had created and allowed to perpetuate the injustices of the land. The Old Testament is full of condemning systemic injustice and insists on a corporate responsibility of the entire nation for allowing it to occur. The entire nation was judged and brought into exile, not just individuals. And usually, the way to uh, avoid the demands of justice and corporate responsibility that's found in the prophets is to functionally fall into the same errors as uh, Marconianism and to focus only on the New Testament's teaching of personal responsibility or personal faith. Those ideas are good ideas. They are right and true ideas that the Bible teaches. But so often, for many, the commitments to live free from the costly expectations of justice lead to a marginalization or rejection of the full witness of the prophets. So, whether we find ourselves more of the progressive type or more of the conservative type, I need us all to feel the weight of Jesus' words when he says, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law and the prophets until all has been accomplished. Nothing about the Old Testament scriptures, Jesus says, passes away. You know, there's a really great exchange I've referenced many times before from Matthew 22, when Jesus summarizes the entirety of the law. Jesus summarizes all the law and the prophets by saying this. You've heard it before. It says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. That is, the law can be summarized that we are to love God with our whole being. Place nothing above him and his desires for us. And that the second is to love our neighbor as ourselves. Why? Because all the law and the prophets hang on these two commitments. Progressive types struggle loving God with their whole being because that would likely require living in a new way marked by holiness and purity. Conservative types will struggle to love their neighbor as themselves because that will likely require living in a new way that aligns with the demands of the prophets of justice and others' orientation. And as a side note, I also find it ironic and interesting that we are often willing to do what the other is not willing to do. What I mean by that is progressives tend to really like the ideas of justice and loving your neighbor. Conservatives tend to really like the ideas of the moral law. But again, hear the words of Jesus that not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law and the prophets until all has been accomplished. We are all failing to varying degrees to rightly live according to the law and the prophets. All of us. 
We all will find ourselves somewhere on that spectrum. And as a result, the consequence of that is that we then do not live righteously, which is Jesus' whole point. All of this desperately matters for two reasons. The first reason that all that matters is because we will not understand the rest of Jesus' sermon if we don't see that all kingdom ethics, everything that we're going to look at for the coming weeks, are rooted in a commitment to love God and to love others. All of them are. That is the center of biblical morality, biblical ethics, God and others. But the second reason why this desperately matters is because of what Jesus says next. His next words, given what we've already said about our failure to live according to the law and the prophets, should send shivers up our spine. Because after realizing the extent to which we are not righteous as a result of our rejection of the law and the prophets, something we all do in various ways, we hear Jesus say in verse 20, For I tell you that unless your righteousness, right, so your adherence to the law and the prophets, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. What is the relationship to the law and the prophets in the kingdom of heaven? Let's consider that finally. We said that the, the Pharisees were uh, the best of the best when it came to following the moral law. If you, if you know anything about the, the Pharisees, they were obsessed with following the law of God. They, they built their entire identity on following the law, and their entire identity on purity. No one had a righteousness that surpassed the Pharisees. So what in the world does Jesus expect from us here? Does that mean that no one, including the Pharisees, should enter the kingdom of heaven? Well, the short answer to that question is yes. I mean, no one should. Jesus is unequivocally stating that no one deserves to enter the kingdom because no one follows the law and the prophets like they should. No one desires to be holy and pure. Nobody seeks justice like they should. You just don't. I just don't. A sole pursuit of righteousness means, as a means of entering the kingdom, is a hopeless pursuit because that ends uh, in our inability to do so. Jesus and the testimonies of the scriptures make it clear that God is not up in the sky weighing on a scale our good deeds and our bad deeds. And the goal is at the end of the day to try to have our good deeds outweigh the bad deeds to tip the scale. Which is how often people imagine God's uh, righteousness and judgment to, to play out. God has no scale. And as a result, how then should we think about entering into the kingdom? Well, according to Jesus... There's no scale. The only way to get in is to have a perfect righteousness. There's no weighing good and bad. It's perfect and enter or unperfect and exit. It's a very stark kind of contrast. But if we cannot possibly accomplish a perfect righteousness, if anybody here believes themselves to be perfectly righteous, I'd love to chat with you afterward. I think we could all admit... <laughs> We fail at this. If we cannot accomplish a, a perfect righteousness, what are we doing here? What is the hope? Is there even any hope? Well, there is, my friends. And do you know where we can find the answer to that question about where we 
have hope where there is this righteousness? We can find the answer and the hope in the very same place where we find the condemnation. In the law and the prophets, the very words that Jesus is referencing, right, the words of the Old Testament, we not only find scriptures that, close the, that seem to close the door to the kingdom, but we also, in those same scriptures, find how that door opens up to us. I mean, consider the testimony of the same scriptures, the law and the prophets, about what it means to actually achieve and have and possess a perfect righteousness. The prophet Samuel in Samuel 16 speaks uh, and tells us that God looks at our hearts. See, the Pharisees, like many of us today, uh, distorted and manipulated and even rejected the law and the prophets because they did not read them rightly. The Pharisees were very unconcerned with the heart but only cared about the external expression of the law, never concerned about what's happening actually inside their hearts. This is why Jesus is constantly rebuking them. They missed that the law and the prophets told them that God desires a heart of righteousness, a heart that's reflective of the law. So God looks at the heart. But then the prophet Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 36, tells us that God gives us a new heart. He gives us a new heart and he puts his spirit within us. And with that spirit, Jeremiah 31 tells us that on that heart, God writes his law. It is that gracious act that makes our righteousness greater than the Pharisees. It is that law written on our heart that makes us perfectly righteous. No scales to tip. It's a work of God's grace in giving us a heart with his law written on it. And how do you receive that new heart righteousness with the law written upon it? Through the one who is the the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. I mean, Jesus is the one who makes us perfectly righteous before the Father. A righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees. A righteousness that welcomes us into the kingdom. I mean, this is exactly what the Apostle Paul meant in 2 Corinthians 5, that in Christ, by faith in Jesus, we become the righteousness of God. The law of God, it confronts us and it reveals to us the extent to which we do not love God as we should, nor do we love our neighbor as we should. We do not care about being holy and righteous the way that God desires us to be. We do not care about pursuing justice in this world like we should. We fail on it regularly. And the law shows us that. But the law and the prophets also show us the extent to which Jesus overrides that unrighteousness to produce in us a righteousness worthy of his kingdom. And that grace ought to then produce in us a desire to be a people who reflect what Jesus has done within us, to reflect what the Spirit of God is doing in us. One day we will experience fully and completely what it means to be truly righteous when we enter into the kingdom of God. But until that day, when we experience it in its fullest, the Spirit of God, as we trust in Jesus, makes us a people that pursue holiness, 
pursue purity, that pursue justice, and to stop making excuses for why we don't want to do those things. The Spirit of God confronts us in our failures and reminds us of the beauty of what Jesus has done in us, that we might then be a people that reflect the kingdom of God by living out the law and the prophets. So my question, I guess, would be to all of us. Where are we not living in alignment with the new heart that God gives? I mean, maybe let's just first start there. Maybe you have not actually experienced what it means to receive this new heart by trust and faith in Jesus. My call to you would be, embrace that gift that God extends to you now to receive that new heart, a new heart with the law of God written on it. But Christian, if you're here and you have received that new heart, where exactly might you fail most consistently? Do you find that obedience and holiness and purity are lacking? And so as a result, you're not loving God with your whole being. And as a result, maybe you have a tendency to marginalize the law of God. Or maybe you are unconcerned with justice or works of compassion or the good of your neighbor. And you're not loving your neighbor as you should. And in this way, you have a tendency toward marginalizing the prophets. Where is it on that spectrum? And look again to Jesus, that his spirit might produce in you the same fervor that Jesus has about the law and the prophets, that we might be a people that make known the kingdom of God in our purity, in our holiness, in our justice, all for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we know that you see us down to the very bottom. God, you see how we fail to live in response to the law and the prophets. You see how we can, at times, maybe be unconcerned with purity, holiness. We don't desire to love you with our whole being because we desire to make decisions about how we live on our own. God, you also see that at times we don't care about justice. We care only uh, about ourselves and we don't think about what your word has to share with us about what it means to be a people that confront and combat the injustices of our society. God, you see our failure in that as well. And God, um, you would be justified in rejecting us for our rejection of you. But because of your love, your grace, and mercy, you do not push us aside but rather you welcome us in as we trust in the work of your son, the one who fulfills the law and the prophets fully and completely, the one who as a result of what he accomplishes sends his spirit to do a work in us, to give us a new heart, to write your law on that heart that we might then be a people that go out and proclaim the glories of your kingdom in the way that we live God, I pray that you would, by your spirit, make very clear to us our failures. Bring conviction, Lord, and restore to us the joy of your salvation that we might be a people 
who make known that salvation through our lives, our actions, and our words. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.